On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. We're breaking down the metal landscape in the year 1983. Motley Crue and Quiet Riot come to the party. Slayer, Metallica, and Anthrax are kicking the doors down underground. And Van Halen and the Big Guns are continuing their dominance. All that and more, next on Metal Mayhem ROC. WLFE TV Radio. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. It's Thursday night. It's time for a brand new episode. As always, we invite you to visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. There you'll find direct links to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can download some past shows, rate, review, and subscribe. Sign up for our email list. There you'll receive weekly updates on new shows and giveaways. Tonight's show, we are doing our continuing series, History of Metal, Tonight, the year 1983, I'll be bringing on Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke. They're the two guys that helped me with this show. They're on location in New Jersey and Central New York. So again, I'll be bringing them on. Just to remind you about our media partners, Monday nights, I host a live interactive radio show on MetalDevastationRadio.com. It's 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. It's a totally live radio show. I play tunes. There's a chat room. You come in, you interact with myself along with the other bangers on Metal Devastation Radio. It's a real good time. And also, a friend of the show, Mark James, he hosts two kick-ass shows on the weekends. Friday night's Metal Mark's Vault, playing rare and classic metal. And Saturday night, he comes back with Metal Mark's Audio Aggression. So that's some of the live radio shows we have to offer. All this information, again, just go back to the MetalMayhemROC.com website. Thank you for the support. And get in there and rate and review these episodes. It really does help. So let's get going. The year 1983, the history of metal. Van Halen, Judas Priest, they're at the top of the hill. And Motley Crue, Rat. The glam bands are coming to the party. The underground's exploding. So let's talk about it. Live from New Jersey, Metal Walt. Hey, Walt, what's going on, man? Hey, Verno, how's it going? Metal Walt here from Jersey. All right, Walt, what's up, man? How you been? I'm good. What's up, Ian? How you doing, bud? Hey, Metal Walt, Verno, glad to be back with you guys. How you all doing? Good, good. So we're here to talk uh, the year 1983 in hard rock and heavy metal. Um, Again, this is a decade of metal continuing its rise. And uh, in 83, you have 60-plus releases from known bands and many, many others. Um, I think it's highlighted by a really big abundance of debut releases. And uh, narrowed it down, there were 17 releases from very well-known bands. Um, It's also probably categorized by a surprising fast rise to massive success for several bands three of them who we'll talk about, who skyrocketed and became household names as a result. So uh, for today's episode, we're going to focus on releases for about 30 bands. But I strongly encourage the listeners to do your own exploration, get out there, because there's so many more that are that worth, are worth a little bit of research. And then we'll finish up the discussion today about the impact a major festival had on the metal scene. So that's uh, the plan for 83. We're going to begin it with honorable mentions. And over to you, Ian. So I'm going to kick it off with uh, MSG. They had the album Built to Destroy, which was released in September of 83. This is the fourth studio album from the band. Although they have not or have had a rotating lineup for each album, 
Shanker has been the one consistent, and he's really pulling out his own brand of metallic tinged hard rock with a lot of his intriguing solos and and material that he's doing as usual. Um, the next album I really want to jump into is Thin Lizzy, Thunder and Lightning. This was released in March of 83. And unfortunately, being the swan song for the legendary hard rock band, um, this was quite the exit. Uh, the addition of John Sykes on guitar really brings the metallic attack to the material, and he kind of sends them off into the sunset in a really powerful style. There's a lot of really good material on here, and I think that any listener here should do their due diligence and go back and check this out because this is really something they're going to enjoy. And then the last one that I'm going to talk about is Never Surrender from Triumph. This was released in January of 83 in the U.S. And with this one, we see our Canadian friends continuing with that formula of hard rock and material that we've come to know from them that was perfectly tailor-made for cranking in your car stereo or pumping through an arena PA system. These guys really were one of those bands that were at the top of the, of the bill at the time, and, and they were all over AM radio, or excuse me, FM radio, and, uh, you know, even MTV at the time, because, you know, it was still a, uh, a very young entity, but they were um, a key part in their beginning stages for that. Yeah, that Triumph release, Never Surrender, you know, that was coming off the heels of that Allied Forces a couple years earlier, and that was the first tour I had a chance to see them, and you're right, they, they were blowing up, and they, you know, they were all over MTV and stuff. So uh, good roundup, good roundup. I'm going to take a peek at some of the, uh, you know, bigger bands and lesser bands. First one, ACDC, 1983, saw the release of Flick of the Switch. Ninth studio album by the band, third with Brian Johnson, and last with Phil Rudd. Now, ACDC had that Back in Black and For Those About to Rock that were mega platinum. You know, those were generational albums. And those were produced by Mutt Lang. Well, Mutt didn't do this one. The Angus and Malcolm, the young brothers, decided to do it themselves. And the end product really reflected that. It was a more back-to-basics release. They were looking for that, that raw sound. And in some ways, they achieved it. But then on other aspects, they fell short. Songs like Rising Power and This House is on Fire were kick-ass songs. Guns for Hire opened the tour, and it's been a in-and-out staple in their live set in the years to come. And the, the fun thing is the song Bedlam in Belgium was inspired by a crazy scene at a, uh, a festival in Belgium on one of their earlier tours. So they put pen to paper and wrote about it. Now, Phil Rudd, he was fired midway through the album's recording session due to uh, continuous drug and alcohol issues that dated back to like the back of black days. So ACDC, flick of the switch, not a bad album, but not one of their best. Next on tap is Raven. Now the new wave of British heavy metal guys, release the uh, their staple album, All for One, in 1983. This would be the last album of them on the independent labels as the next release would be on a major label. This album contains some notable tracks with Udo Dirkschneider of Accept. He would do background vocals on two or three tracks, Breaking the Chain, and a import of the version of Run Silent, Run Deep. The Gallagher brothers go on record to say that this was the album that they dreamt making when they were growing up. Next album, Power into Glory, Saxon, their fifth. First with drummer Nigel Glockler. Fun thing with this, it recorded in Atlanta, Georgia. Canadian journalist Martin Popoff writes that it was considered uh, their best album at the time. And this is you know, coming on the heels of Denim and Leather and Wheels of Steel and Strong Arm of the Law. I like the album. It has some killer songs. I wouldn't put it above Denim and Leather, but I would still consider it a go-to entry. Last album we're going to look at is the album from Merciful Fate. Danish heavy metal band released their debut album, Melissa, in October of 1983. Great band, have their roots in, you know, the occult and some of those darker subjects. 
King Diamond, Michael Denner, Hank Sherman, Timmy Grabber Hansen, Kim Ruiz. That's the ultimate lineup. That's the Merciful Fate lineup that we all love. Great songs. According to Michael Denner, there's about 16 different riffs in the song Satan's Fall, which that's the longest song of the time in the Merciful Fate catalog. Merciful Fate was good friends with Metallica back in 84. The band's bonded as both King Diamond and Lars come from Danish backgrounds. Well, what do you got, buddy? Good job, Vern, on that recap. And uh, yeah, I agree. The Raven and Saxon, big fans of those albums. I'm not so, so hot on that ACDC flick of the switch. And I got to say that Mer- Merciful Fate Melissa album is, uh, you know, killer. Seven out of seven tracks. That's a legendary album. So Twisted Sister was signed to Atlantic Records following a surge of the band as a result of the Under the Blade album that was released prior. So in 83, they released the You Can't Stop a Rock and Roll album. Because they signed to a major label, that label provided them with the media support and the money and the funding needed, which really elevated the status of the band. And I think in the reaction of the music, number one, it's on a major record label, and the release itself, the music, has much better sound quality, which I think added to uh, the growth of their reputation. The album contains staple songs, The Kids Are Back, and of course the title track, which also becomes the first in a series of many popular comedic videos that would sort of define them through the early to mid-80s go go forward. So that's the first one there. Y&T. By 1983, this band was growing uh, much more so at an international level. And uh, although they were still well-regarded in the States, they were a global band now. And in 83, they, uh, they played a big support role on some major tours and festivals in Europe for acts like Ozzy, Motley Crue, ACDC, Iron Maiden, and ZZ Top. This is the year that they released a Mean Streak album, which I think most fans will know is loaded with solid tracks and is probably considered a must-have out of this band's catalog. I mean, you add the title track and then songs like Straight Through the Heart, Lonely Side of the Town, and of course that band staple Midnight in Tokyo. Night Ranger. This band releases the second album, Midnight Madness, which becomes uh, the band's highest selling album of their career. The album contains three massive, massive radio and MTV hits. Uh, We know them all well. You can still rock in America when you close your eyes. And of course, the ballad Sister Christian, sung by uh, drummer Kelly Keegee. So by 83, they were all over the place. And Night Ranger in the States was, was a headliner act out on the concert tour. And to end my area, I'm going to get a little more in-depth about Black Sabbath. Uh, Ian Gillen comes in at Singer, which would be the start of a lengthy period of a revolving door of singers in and out of the band. Um, It was also the start of a long-term relationship with Ian and Tony Iommi, as down the road they would would do future collaborations for Rocky for Armenia. And later on, they would re-record the song Trash for an Ian Gillen solo album called Gillen's In. As he joined the band, legend had it that they actually considered David Coverbell, Robert Plant, and surprisingly, Michael Bolton. But Ian was sort of initiated, and I say that in air quotes, after a heavy night of drinking together as a band, only to get a call the following day from the band manager that he agreed to join as the singer, which I think the band probably had no memory of after being hungover. Nonetheless, they make the Born Again album, which in my opinion, is a highly underrated and underappreciated album, although it was intended to be a release from a new supergroup. But of course, the record label pressured them to release it out of Black Sabbath album. Um, I think the difference here is you really see the return of heavy, heavy riffs in tracks like Zero the Hero and Disturbing the Priest. And there's a lot of really good fast-paced songs such as Trash and Digital Bitch and Hotline. The The picture that Ian Gillen painted was he brought in that token abundance of his high-pitched screams and howls, and it's all over the place on this album. Um, I think Trash, the song, which was probably, let's call it the single or the most popular one, was written about an experience of them racing a car around the studio of uh, where they were recording and writing, and it flipped over, and they got out of it, and they were all okay, and I think that's uh, where that song was inspired of. I think the album cover works a calling out, too, because it kind of contains this disturbingly looking red devil baby, which I personally have a heart for because uh, it's the centerpiece of my heavy metal patch denim jacket. 
Um, as the band went out on tour, there were definitely some Spinal Tap moments where they kind of tried to recreate Stonehenge, but they made it too big and it couldn't fit in the hockey arenas. And among some other things where they had these plans to have a dwarf walk across the top of it and fall into mattresses, but all kind of comical stuff. Um, they did tour for the album. And, and although if you listen to the old bootlegs and YouTube videos, it's sort of an uncomfortable yet satisfying feeling hearing Ian Gilling singing some of the old Ozzy and uh, Ronnie James Dio songs, but it seems to work. So I encourage the listeners to, to check out the, uh, the old videos. So that concludes the honorable mentions. And now I'll go ahead and kick off uh, the debuts category. Zebra. Um, Zebra released a self-titled album, and they were a trio formed in New Orleans, yet who really came of age in the Long Island, New York area. Um, they were initially a cover band playing songs from bands like Led Zeppelin, Yes, Pink Floyd, and Jethro Tull. And you can certainly hear the influence in those artists and the uh, high-range singing of Randy Jackson and the rather, I would say, mature and complex musical structure of the song. Um, why we're putting it on here is the album contains two hits that received national radio airplay, Who's Behind the Door and Tell Me What You Want. And the album itself peaked at, uh, at number 29 on the U.S. charts. So Steeler releases their self-titled debut album in September of 83. Um, and with this album, we see the introduction of Swedish guitar hero Ingve Malmsteen and Ron Keel before they each had their own career separately, um, affronting their own bands. Uh, it was released on Shrapnel uh, Records, and we finally get a taste of this new guitar slinger influence that is bringing about the uh, next uh, wave um, of what they would call neoclassical shredders at the time. Piggybacking off that, shortly after this album was released, Ingve had left the band and joined forces with Graham Bonnet to form the band Alcatraz, who released their album No Patrol for Rock and Roll in October of 83. And with this, we see them teaming up because Graham Bonnet coming from Rainbow and MSG fame previously, so he has a familiarity <clears throat> with playing with some of these um, guitar technicians uh, with their pyrotechnics and super abilities. Um, and they really released their own form of American heavy metal at the time with a lot of really good classics on there. So give yourself a chance and go out and check it out. Let's follow up Ingve uh, with another guitar god and Fast Eddie Clark from Motorhead leaves the band and he forms Fastway. Now the fun thing with Fastway is Pete Way from ex-bass player with UFO, that's who Fast Eddie Clark made the band with. Fast Eddie Clark, Pete Way, but Pete never uh, played on the album. I guess the pre-production for the album took too long. He didn't have time for it, and he started his own band called Wasted. <laughs> sort of, uh, I don't understand any of that, but the album was great. Had a fantastic radio single with uh, Say What You Will. It put him on the map. Very uh, guitar-driven, feel me, touch me, uh, another day, heft. Um, this is a great band, and, you know, they were able to get on the Iron Maiden Peace of Mind tour later in uh, the 1983, and we'll touch on Maiden later in the show. So we also see the release from Grim Reaper, See You in Hell. Um, and this is another one of those classes classic British metal acts um, that were coming out at the time during this new wave of British heavy metal surge. Um, the title track became a regular fixture during uh, the heavy metal rotations on MTV, so much to the point by early 1984, RCA Records signed them and re-released the album worldwide, bringing even more attention to these uh, luminaries of the new wave of British heavy metal. Um, they were... You know, you know, some people, you know, could give or take them. Um, I think that they've got a lot of great solid material. Uh, Nick Bocott, the guitar player, was just a monster, and he really knew how to craft a riff. Sabotage, a band from uh, Florida that was considered a significant piece of the U.S. heavy metal movement of the early to mid-'80s, releases their debut, Sirens. Um, this band was originally called Avatar in the late 70s to early 80s, but another band had that name. And they kind of played around with the uh, letters uh, from the uh, the word avatar, added a C, 
and uh, some things at the end, and that's how the the name Sabotage was uh, was found. Um, of course, as I said, they were formed in Florida from the Tampa area by brother John and the late guitarist Chris Oliva. Um, this album is the first in the period of which, which the band would release more traditional straight-ahead heavy metal music. And as they got to the late 80s, their styles would change. And I think we'll all know what's to come as uh, they have a signature sound that they're synonymous for, you know, by the late 80s to early 90s. But On Sirens it is a strong release. Um, the title track um, and songs like Holocaust are real good heavy metal straight-ahead rockers. And then just a small side note on here is actually sirens and what would become the the second release dungeons are calling were all recorded and mixed in the same day imagine that but the band with the record label they didn't have enough money to put out a full release or whatever finished in the studio so they actually just released the songs on sirens and then the uh dungeons ep would come out uh a year later i never do that that both of those albums were recorded they're recorded in the same day well, recorded in the same day and mixed in one day. Amazing feat, if you think about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, um, I can't do three loads of laundry in one day, let alone record all that music. Correct me here. Uh, I think Sirens only had seven or eight songs on it itself, right? Yeah, that's correct. I actually had nine songs on it, and Dungeons was a shorter album because it was you know, really probably meant to be uh, an extension of one big album and it turned into an EP, yeah. Uh, fortunately, I had a chance to see the band in that era at a club up here in Rochester and uh, Sirens was the first uh, album I got into, so. Okay, uh, let's keep it in, um, you know, underground metal, Slayer. 1983 album, Show No Mercy. It's the debut, it's um, from Metal Blade Records. The band self-financed this whole album, Savings of Tom Araya, the uh, uh, bass player. He was a respiratory therapist at the time, and they borrowed money from guitarist Kerry King's dad. Uh, became Metal Blade's highest-selling release. Tracks, The Antichrist, Die by the Sword, Black Magic, were all part of Slayer's live shows. The band went on tour in the States after the album's release, Funny thing here is they uh, packed up a Reyes Camaro and a U-Haul and hit the road. They didn't have a manager. They met this guy named Doug Goodman, who happened to be the first one in line waiting for the first show in Northern California when they're opening for Laz Rocket. He ended up going on tour with the band and became their manager. And the dude parlayed that experience into becoming... um tour managers for such acts as Green Day and Beck. So you never know. Show No Mercy was met with um, good and bad reviews. In 1984, Dave Dixon of Kerrang! crushed the album, defining it pure, unadulterated junk, while Brandon Doe of Metal Forces called the album one of the heaviest, fastest, most awesome albums of all time. Canadian journalist Martin Popoff was in the middle. Praise Show No Mercy for being um, as seminal as Metallica's Kill 'Em All in defining state-of-the-art speed metal and for inspiring new bands to explore the limits of metal. Next one we're going to take a peek at is Queensryche, the EP. Now, this is a fun story. Queensryche comes up from uh, the Northwest, Seattle, at the time, it was just teenagers in a cover band called The Mob. They were playing Iron Maiden, Judas Priest covers. There was another band in town that had eventual lead singer Queensryche Jeff Tate in it. Well, they jammed once or twice, and they got along great, but Tate did not want to do covers. So the four remaining members, Michael Wilton, Eddie Jackson, Chris DeGarmo, and Scott Rockenfield, they went down in the basement and they started writing what turned out to be the original material on the EP. They turned Tate onto it. They got together. Tate wrote the lyrics and the album, the EP, found its way to Kerrang! over in Europe, over in England. They gave it a five-star, huge review, and the rest is history. Verno, I uh, still, to this day, many years later, that Queensryche EP, it just kills Good wrap up there. Rat. Uh, Rat released uh, their self de self debut as an EP 
Um, although it actually had seven songs, so I wouldn't exactly call it a short EP, it's a long EP. Um, I think what's interesting is the, uh, the cover album and the art was probably one of the first of its kind. Um, it was very sensual and it depicts a girl's legs and that's all you see. And uh, she's got stockings and red high heels. And it's kind of interesting as you see these rats kind of crawling around her stockings. So very uh, promiscuous per se. But as we all know, that was the band's image go forward. And uh, this was uh, no exception. And it did feature that classic lineup of Stephen Piercy, Warren Martini, and Robin Crosby on guitar with Juan Crutchier and Bobby Blotzer on drums. Um, there were quite some good tracks on this. Uh, the ones that I think are probably the best ones are You Think You're Tough and You're in Trouble. And I think uh, the, the cover of a cover of Walking the Dog was also a good one. Dio. Uh, the Dio band was formed as a result of the tensions over that Black Sabbath live evil situation, as I captured in the 1982 episode. And in wanting to stay together, Ronnie and Vinnie Apice partnered with ex-Rainbow bassist Jimmy Bain and brought on Vivian Campbell on guitar. Um, in 83, they released their debut album, Holy Diver, No Explanation Needed There, um, which is an album that contains several hit singles, such as Rainbow in the Dark and the title track, Holy Diver, as well as many other metal legendary tracks, such as Stand Up and Shout and Don't Talk to Strangers, amongst others. Um, overall, the album is just laced with strong melodic hooks and stellar songwriting. And I think, in a way, the songs in this album define the sound and reputation of that Dio band go forward in their career. Um, and I will say that although this is technically in our debut category, it really also deserves some recognition as we transition to the next section, the most impactful albums category for 83. So in addition to the band members and the music, I think the imagery is important to call out as, you know, you really saw Ronnie becoming even more of a prolific type songwriter than it already was with Rainbow and Sabbath. And you saw that change in with him as a solo artist and the Holy Diver his lyrics often contain imagery of fantasy and heroic type adventures. But, and, uh, you know, at times, although he painted this picture of like the Renaissance era or years long ago with castles, dragons and swords and that kind of stuff, there was always that underlying message built in that related to the human condition where there was, let's say, tragedy and then overcoming challenges, hope, and then rising above it. And that's something I think he took a lot of private pride in. Um, the Holy Diver release, as well as many of the albums to come later on, all had vivid cover art. In the case of this one, it was the band mascot, Murray, who kind of looked like part human, part animal. And he was kind of spinning up in the mountains, chains around what appears to be a man who's drowning in water. So always some, uh, some cool art on the Dio album. Uh, in my personal opinion, it's the best album in the band's catalog of 10 studio albums and, of course, an essential piece of heavy metal history. I certainly agree with that. That Holy Diver, everything from those twisted lyrics to that album cover to that opening track, um, you're right. It is it is the best of that deal catalog. I'm going to take a peek now at that Metallica Kill Em All, the debut. Now, Metallica, my vote, biggest heavy metal band in the world, recorded up here in Rochester, New York, right in my backyard, and... Throughout this podcast, I've done extensive interviews with engineers that have done the album, people that were there. I have made friends with people that befriended Metallica, drank with them, puked with them, ate with them. The stories go on and on. All I can say about the Kill 'Em All album is it was the perfect storm. It was the combination of Lars being from Denmark, James being from uh, California, but the two having a love for that European metal. The early days with Dave Mustaine, even though he was only in the band eight months, those him and Lars had a bond that was you know, very special. That's what really hurt in Dave's books. Dave expressed that him and Lars, they became best friends like instantly. And for him to turn on them, you know, caused years of therapy for Dave. But the bottom line was the band was very European in their roots. And that album's just filled with groundbreaking stuff. It had Cliff Burton on there that was just a virtuoso on bass that all his influences came from the non-metal factor. Kirk Hammett, 
came from, who eventually replaced Mustaine. You know, he had his roots in Exodus, but his guitar playing was European. Ulrich Roth, uh, Richie Blackmore, Michael Schenker, all that stuff. So it was just a mixture, that, and that's what separated Metallica from the Slayers and the Anthraxes and even those other NorCal bands, the uh, Testaments that came later. But some of those bands, that's what separated them, and that's what made them my favorite, one of my favorite heavy metal bands of all time in this Kill 'Em All album. I don't think it's their best, but I think it was one of the best debuts and one of the most influential and important heavy metal albums of all time. Berno couldn't have said it better on that Metallica. I think, again, that's why we're ranking it as the number one debut release uh, of 1983, and it had a big impact. So now we're going to segue into um, the remaining eight bands that we're going to cover today. And this is going to be what we call the most impactful category. And we did a little research and a little debating, and we kind of ranked them from bottom up. Um, So I'm going to get it started with Kiss. In a move intended to continue to build back the band's reputation, simply put, Kiss took off the makeup. And this gathered a lot of attention from both the media and the fans and really put them in the spotlight. In a sense, this was also the beginning of the band's, let's say, air quotes, 80s image as the the members changed their look on the album cover, coming in with big hair and bright colors. And this would uh, be their sort of style, at least through the the 1988-89 period. But again, in 83, they released the Lick It Up album, which was recorded shortly after the Creatures of the Night tour ended mid-83. They went right back into the studio and banged this one out. Uh, Vinnie Vincent was included on both the songs and the album cover. However, in a sense, he was never really an official band member. And I think rumor has it because he refused to sign a contract with the band. I don't really know a whole lot more about that. So in a way, I guess he was only considered a hired gun as a lead guitarist. The title track and All Hell's Breaking Loose were released as the singles with, of course, videos to support it. You know, the videos were the guys looking too cool for school in the band, marching down the streets, breaking things, and there was always hot girls somewhere nearby, and, you know, the world was too perfect. But that's what the beautiful 80s were. So, uh, you know, very, very prominent figure in Gene and Paul in these videos, um, and that that's kind of how it was. But, yeah, other solid tracks on the album, too. I think, uh, overall, it's a decent album. Um, I think the song Fits Like a Gun was good, and uh, Young and Wasted, which was sung by Eric Carr, was also a really cool sort of deep track. Um, I guess this uh, period of the band would end upon the conclusion of the tour, and Vinnie Vincent was left let go, and they moved on from him, and I think it was really tensions over him not signing the contract, and also his refusal to keep his guitar solos in check on tour, where he was allotted five or ten minutes, and he would just go on and on and like totally blow up the show. So, uh, moving along, except in 1983, this band releases the Balls to the Walls album, uh, which, again, contains more of their signature fist-pumping, metal-marching-type songs that they're best known for. Uh, The title track has become the band's signature song and claim to fame. And I often think of, like, how many teenage boys at that time, adolescent teenage boys, would just be giggling because they're talking about the balls or his balls in a song. Probably got a lot of giggles, beavis and butthead-type stuff. But nonetheless, the song is iconic, and it's another one of those, you know, top five metal anthems for the genre of music. Um, And I think what also makes it, let's say, most impactful is not just that, but it was also the album cover and the title sort of had some controversy at the time. And as there was some speculation of homoerotic type themes throughout, of course, the album cover uh, is really a depiction of a man's legs and his crotch. And, you know, it's a very, very short, tight look with tight leather pants. And, of course, you have the title track and then songs like London Leather Boys that led to that, let's say, mystique. But uh, to end that note, what was interesting is uh, that neither Udo Dirkschneider or Wolf Hoffman were the lyricists because, as I understood it at that time, they did not speak English. So uh, Wolf's wife, Gabby Hauck, was actually the one who wrote the lyrics for this song. And, of course, when interviewed and asked about the homoerotic theme, she denied and downplayed the accusation. So that's a subjective opinion. We leave it up to the listeners to make your own uh, opinions. Well, I'm going to start my section off with Crocus. 
with the album Headhunter. This was released in April of 83, and we see our Swiss friends now. These guys really have reached an apex point in their career. With songs like Headhunter and Eat the Rich and a killer cover of Stayed Awake All Night from Bachman Turner Overdrive, and then the whopper of a song Screaming in the Night, which saw heavy rotation on MTV as well as rock radio. We see these guys really, really jumping to that, that next big level, putting themselves right up there with the Scorpions and Judas Priest, even being included on tours with them um, throughout uh, the States and in Europe. Um, we see their stars, stars shining so bright that even Rob Halford lends his vocals backing up on the song Ready to Burn. Um, this was produced by heavy metal alum Tom Allum, who uh, got his uh, teeth cut with uh, Black Sabbath. And um, really, this is an album that is, is full of just classic hard rock and metal. Um, it's really one of those albums that kind of just perfectly pinpoints the sound of what was going on at the time in the eighties. And they do it with enough of that European swagger that keeps them sounding just enough in their lane. So they're not stepping on anybody's toes, but still with enough commonality with all the other big dogs that were around at the time. The next album I'm going to touch on is a masterpiece. And this comes from the almighty Iron Maiden. Peace of Mind was released in May of 83. This is the fourth album, classic album from this band. Uh, their second with Bruce on vocals. Um, and really the next rung in their ladder towards uh, world domination. Again, they had Martin Birch uh, twisting the knobs and capturing their amazing and powerful sound. And we receive another album loaded with classic tracks and fan favorites that are still required to be played live to this day. Flight of Icarus, The Trooper, Die With Your Boots On, Where Eagles Dare, and To Tame a Land are just some of these monumental masterpieces that still enthrall the listeners and continue to influence metalheads to this day. It, I think it goes without saying that, I mean, anything that Maiden really put out is just a, ha a have to have album, but this is one of those albums that if you needed a starting point to just get into them early or later, uh, peace of mind is, is, is a monumental piece in its, in its own right. Yeah, I agree. Peace of mind is fantastic. Um, I remember when that came out, and that first video, Flight of Icarus, you know, that's when MTV would have those video premieres and you'd wait all day. Uh, quick comment on that, Crocus. I didn't realize that that song, Stayed Awake All Night, is a uh, a mountain cover. Is that what you said? Or a BTO? No, 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 no. The Yeah, the song Stayed Awake All Night, yes, was actually written by Bachman Turner Overdrive. Did they record it or did they write it for Crocus? As far as I know, they recorded it. I just, I, I didn't really go back and look and see what album it was on, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I found it was kind of interesting when I came across it that I thought that they had written the song because it flows so well in with their material. But I guess it just goes to show that, you know, a well-written song is a well-written song, no matter which way you play it. Guess I, I have a little heavy metal homework. I'll get the, hit the books and find out about that. Uh, good job. I'm going to take a peek at the Ozzy album, Bark at the Moon. Honestly, not one of my favorite Ozzy albums. I didn't know where it was going at the time. He was starting to get away from his traditional solo and was more synth-infused pop metal sound. You know, you can't blame the guy. It was, you know, post-Randy Rhodes, so, you know, all bets were off. It was uh, the debut of Jakey Lee on guitar. I like Jakey Lee. He was... Um, you know, he was put in a tough spot, and I think he delivered. Go back and forth with rumors on this album of actually who wrote stuff, who got credit for what. Um, Jakey Lee, to this day, says that, you know, he never got credit for writing uh, the song Bark at the Moon. Ozzy himself admitted several years later in the liner notes to the Ozman Kometh that Lee had been involved in the album's writing to some degree, stating that the album's title track was, in fact, co-written by the guitarist. And Ozzy never really helped himself anyways by acting, 
you know, all crazy, all that shit he did, pissing on the Alamo, biting heads off bats and doves. You know, so it was really not like um, preconceived stuff that he did. It was just, you know, Ozzy, after years of drug abuse and everything else, it was uh, just how he was. So Bark at the Moon, uh, the tour was cool. Motley Crue opened. It was uh, it was a good concert. The crew on the Shout at the Devil. So that's Bark at the Moon. Taking off from there, I'm going to discuss the album Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. And uh, I think I went on record before, but if not, I will now, that the Too Fast for Love album for that raw sound that I had is one of my favorites. But this album here, this is the second album by the band, and it saw a crew really exploding into the limelight of fame and debauchery, as we know. Love them or hate them, uh, songs like Shout at the Devil, Looks to Kill, Too Young to Fall in Love, uh, received constant rotation on MTV and on rock radio at the time, and additional songs like Red Hot, 10 Seconds to Love, and their cover of the Beatles' Helter Skelter. Tour starting, uh, you know, happening for these guys, supporting Kiss, uh, the aforementioned Ozzy and even Van Halen and ACDC on the Monsters Rock tour, uh, which unfortunately crew shot themselves in the foot um, and got kicked off the tour shortly afterwards uh, because of pissing off not only Eddie Van Halen, but Malcolm Young. Um, But it did give them uh, huge exposure and a reputation for chaos and destruction helped to launch them into legendary status um, as their lore of sex, drugs, and rock and roll continued to grow. Along the way, though, they still created some really good music. Uh, you know, they had some ups and downs, you know, obviously because of drinking and drugs. But, um, you know, Too Fast for Love and Shout at the Devil, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's still a pretty solid one-two punch uh, for a new band. So um, hats off to uh, Motley Crue. Yeah, Ian, I think other what's, what's other important uh, to call out on that Motley Crue is the imagery and the uh, four band members on the cover. And I think in a way it brought that sort of uh, – like a new variation of this mystique, like an old 70s kiss where they're kind of partly hair metal, but they got the makeup on and you kind of weren't sure what the image they were bringing, bringing, and then they're kicking things down. And, you know, you didn't have the exposure on like social media. So you really had to only see it from the videos and hear about it or read about it in, you know, uh, magazines like Metal Edge or Kerrang. So good wrap up there. I think um, this is, as of when I started the show, I said there were going to be three really bands um, that, that came out in 83 that really were probably maybe not expecting to skyrocket the way they did, and Motley Crue was certainly one of them. Um, Quiet Riot. Um, having recruited Carlos Cavazzo and Frankie Benali in 1982 for what was expected to be a new band, Kevin Dupro opted to keep the band name after talking to the other former members um, after a two-year two hiatus. So they kept the Quiet Right name, and uh, they shopped it around, and they ended up signing out with CBS Records and released the, uh, the Metal Health album in uh, March of 83. Uh, of course, it was driven, the success was driven off of when they released the first single, the Slade cover, Come On, Feel the Noise, um, which uh, this song in and of itself skyrocketed so quickly up the charts and made it all the way up to number five on the Billboard charts. And a little piece uh, note here that this was actually the first heavy metal song ever to crack a top 100 in in that kind of category, at least how they were measuring, let's say, top 100 songs. And of course, on the heels of this, the album itself reached number one in the United States, which again was also a first for this genre of music. And a, a little small fact that's buried in the details there is Around November of 1983, it actually replaced the police's synchronicity on the top of the Billboard charts for a little while. And we all know, I mean, I love that album too, Synchronicity. We know how big the police were in 83. And you can imagine what a feat this was for Quiet Ride to overcome them. Um, I'd say overall, the album includes good songs and the title track, which again, just like the Accept Falls to the Wall, became another heavy metal anthem song. Um, and it adds some other really solid tracks, such as Slickback Cadillac and Run for Cover. And then, of course, the uh, the song Thunderbird, which was partially written before uh, by Randy Rhodes, and it was a song they dedicated to him. Um, and I think, you know, the album cover is another iconic one where you have that depiction, and I'm not certain for sure, but it appears to be 
Kevin Dupro, who's kind of tied up in a straight jacket, and he's got that mask on that uh, you could actually go and buy replicas of that mask here 35-something years later. So iconic all the way around. And I think um, maybe in an odd way, they never really broke out into stardom as a headlining act in the States. And between 83 and 84, they were a support act for ZZ Top and Black Sabbath on, uh, on that tour. Um, but overall, uh, in the U.S., the album would go on to sell 6 million copies. And, and, you know, we think of Quiet Riot, and yeah, they were a big band, but they never really reached that stardom ever after this. And, uh, but just to imagine the impact and those statistics I just laid on you listeners here for the last couple of minutes, it's amazing and no doubt a top three most impactful album of 83. Yeah, the band definitely struck lightning in a bottle. I remember when that um, Metal Health came out, it was like, like who, who are these guys? And what is this? Is it mental health? Is it metal health? You know, and that was the effect of MTV, the, um, the imagery when that video broke. Now, when you talk about uh, the success of MTV, no one accelerated their stardom more than Def Leppard. 1983 saw Pyromania, the band's third album. Now, they were making strides from their first two. On Through the Night, they were kids, high and dry. In the last episode, Walt had a great wrap-up where they were working with Mutt Lang, and, you know, they had some success, but nothing like Pyromania. The melodic hooks and heavy MTV exposure made Pyromania a massive success overnight. The video for Photograph just transcended the lapse into uh, poster pinups. Girls were going bonkers over them with the Union Jack shirt and the Union Jack shorts. And the video for Photograph, it was it was completely out of control. Now, Def Leppard was one of those bands that I got into when they were air quote nobodies so they're my little band that i kept in my pocket and when you know i used to when we were in high school and all of a sudden you you're seeing all like the uh preppy girls walking around with uh joe elliott posters in their lockers and it was very territorial but i never stopped liking the band i thought pyromania back then i wasn't that close-minded i knew that it was it was a great album Unfortunately, original guitarist Pete Willis was only around to lay down the, the rhythm tracks, and then he had to leave because of um, excessive drinking. But they brought in Phil Collin from the band Girl from over in uh, England, and they just kept moving forward. The album sold to the date, 10 million sold. It's just a fantastic piece of work. And while you're right, uh, Quiet Riot never gained that super that superstardom, but Def Leppard did, and they went ahead to release some of the biggest albums in rock history, Hysteria, Adrenalize, and to this day, they're still selling out venues, and, you know, they're still rock and roll gods, if you will. So what do you guys think of Def Leppard? What was, when did you guys get into him? What do you think of Pyromania, Ian? Were you a fan of that release? Yeah, um, Pyromania was probably the first big album that I got. I actually own it on vinyl. Um, and Def Leppard, from that time period, believe it or not, was the first patch that I had put on my jean jacket. And uh, that kind of got everything started with my uh, my war jacket, so to speak, having that Def Leppard patch on there. Because you have to remember, at this particular juncture, I was just starting junior high school. So, um, you know, I, I was one of the cool kids on campus when I had that on there. But, yeah, Def Leppard was so huge. And uh, you're right, you know, that 10 million albums, I mean, they're, they're one of a few that is, has reached that diamond status, um, you know, with that many albums sold. And, it, and that's, you know, just a testament to the fact that these guys really took advantage of the opportunities that they had and they really just honed in. And kudos to Mutt Lang for helping to kind of direct them, you know, because he knew what they were trying to do. Um, and what they wanted to achieve. And, and even though, you know, we've talked about it and before, 
them coming from that new album, you know, uh, underbelly, you know, when they started, they really kind of tried to distance themselves from being a metal band, quote unquote, per se. And they just wanted to be a, a really big hard rock band. So great album. Well, like uh, Walt and Ian exemplified in this last segment, Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, those were the young guns, and they joined forces and had the opportunity of a lifetime to be on what was called the Us Festival. It was a three-day festival on Memorial Day in 1983, co-founded by Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple and creator of the Apple One and Apple II personal computers. So (laughs) the guy had more money than God even back in 83. What he wanted to do was make a big festival of all his favorite bands and just have a huge party. He went as far as to buy the land in Glen Helen Regional Park near DeVore, San Bernardino, California, bulldozed it and created this compound to house this three-day festival. Part of uh, Wozniak's vision, one of the days be a heavy metal day he had invited and paid all these bands quiet riot motley crew were the young guns ozzy osbourne judas priest triumph which we covered in here the scorpions and to headline the show was van halen now van halen didn't have any material out in 83 they had divered down the year before and they were actually on vacation they had a contact david lee roth who was in the jungles of the amazon uh, to come back to the States and they were offered a record-breaking uh, million and a half dollars to do a 90-minute set. Now, th- the sets really weren't groundbreaking. These are the sets that these bands were doing on their normal tours. But the point was heavy metal was at the forefront in the American and worldwide music landscape. These were the biggest bands in the world. There was 300,000 people at this concert. Showtime captured the video for a special. There's bootlegs of the Van Halen and all the bands doing doing their set. Triumph just recently released a uh, pro shot video of their performance there, and it's been well documented. But what we're doing here is uh, just reflecting what we knew about it. I remember when it came out, I remember going over to my buddy's house and he had showtime and, uh, you know, he only let me and another dude over because, you know, at the time his parents were out to dinner and he wouldn't let anyone over. So we were risking uh, my buddy getting grounded. But I remember watching it. And back then, you know, you really didn't see pro shot stuff. And to see Van Halen doing it and seeing the Scorpions, honestly, Van Halen's my favorite band. I like the set even though they're all hammered and everything. But the Scorpions, they're fantastic. Their live version of the zoo and can't get enough is infamous. Go on YouTube and watch and you'll be like, wow, you know, those guys really do kick ass. Walt, any remembrance of the Us Festival? Uh, What's your take on this? Well, I was probably just a little bit too young to even know what was going on being 13 um, and not really fully into that genre of music yet. However, you know, I think it just, in a general sense, you think about uh, a festival of that magnitude and you read up on some of the stats out there and it, and it appears that, you know, the metal day, which was day two, essentially a crushed new wave day, which was the first day. And uh, there are actually some suggested thoughts that maybe that was the beginning of the end of the new wave music after metal just really went, well, it just went up the ladder big time because of that one day. Um, they said something like 370,000 people attended that day too. Um, and I think just in general, the impact that day had on metal as a mainstream genre of music, it really put them at the top, close to the top or at the top. And I think as you know, we'll talk about in uh, the future years coming up, 1984 being our ne- next episode, you're going to see that continued growth and to the point where we are on top, no longer growing. Ian, what are your thoughts on the US Festival? Yeah, I just remember uh, MTV particularly doing all of their live broadcasting. And they were there for the the entire event. But when they were capturing the stuff, especially being the big Van Halen fan that I am, and seeing all the stuff that was going on, and when you get to actually witness David Lee Roth and his chaotic nature – 
that we all know and love. It was just something to behold. And then to go back years later and get to see some of that pro shot footage in its entirety. And like Verno said, I mean, the lineup from, from start to finish was just solid and great. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better day to, I mean, you know, well, at least at that time period, let's say 1983 time period, you couldn't ask for a better day and a better group of bands to have on there. And I thought it was funny because initially Joe Walsh was scheduled to be on that day and he either got bumped because they were seeing the burgeoning star in quiet riot or decided that, you know what, maybe he doesn't fit. And Oh, by the way, we've got this band choir, right? I, I, I happen to think that it had to have been because of, of their ascension at the time that it was something that really kind of catapulted them there. So that kind of tips back the hat to the, those guys, just acknowledging what an impact that they had on the metal community at the time. Um, even though they just didn't have the sustainability to keep it going, but you know, it, such a monumental show, and I mean, for something of that size, you didn't see that until way, way later with some of these larger festivals that came around, you know, to, to have that kind of volume to be there. Um, so, yeah, I, I have nothing but fond memories of the US Festival in 1983. Well, originally Wozniak was trying to uh, springboard off of what Bill Graham was doing in the 70s with those uh those concerts Bill Graham, the famous promoter, was doing Day on the Green. But those were one-day festivals. This was a three-day. And the dude, like, bought a whole parcel of land and bulldozered it. And dude lost, like, 12 to $15 million. But, you know, had to be one hell of a party. So that's the year 1983. A lot of great memories. A lot of bands really starting their career propelling to superstardom and breaking up here in a few years later. So that's what's to come. Well, you got a preview for 1984 for us. Certainly do. So uh, 84 continues with metal and rock on top of the world. And when you look at the list of major releases, you have them coming from veteran bands, rising bands, bands that had broken up and gotten back together, and a lot of new bands. And there's just so many releases. There's only, only almost too many to count. I think you see, again, this trend in uh, a lot of debuts, a lot of debut of American bands, a lot more in the metal category than, let's say, the, the hard rock category. Um, you have one major 70s band that reunites in 1984. Um, and then there was a member of one major band that had a substantial accident that will impact him personally and his band go forward. Um, and then, of course, there's a cult classic tongue-in-cheek movie about a semi-fictional heavy metal band that is released in 84. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, a lot of color to 1984, and we're going to leave it at that. And uh, we'll come back at you next time with 1984. Well, I look forward to it. I love the year 1984. Let's revisit it. All right. Well, thank you, Walt. Thank you, Ian. We'll check in with you um, next week or so. Just a quick reminder, I host a live radio show on Metal Devastation Radio on Monday night. Go to the Metal Mayhem ROC website for details. Seek us out on Twitter, Facebook, interact, and send us your reviews. Go to Podchaser and leave a review at the review box. For Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke, I'm the Vernomatic. You've been listening to the History of Metal, the year 1983. Until next week, keep it heavy. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE-DB Radio. you do to achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, 
the money? 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.